0: This episode of Propaganda is sponsored by The Smitten Kitten, a progressive feminist sex toy store for everyone. Selling body-friendly sex toys since 2003, The Smitten Kitten is your trustworthy source for high-quality, non-toxic toys and equipment for the bedroom and beyond. Their staff of friendly sex nerds can answer all your questions. Visit The Smitten Kitten in Minneapolis or on the web at smittenkittenonline.com. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. So in all the chaos of this election this year, we've seen an interesting voter outreach tactic. Hillary Clinton's campaign in Ohio, the crucial swing state, is using Pokemon Go to recruit voters.
1: I don't know who created Pokemon Go. (laughs) we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls.
0: As a non-Pokemon Go player, I was a little confused about how this works or why a campaign would use Pokemon Go. But this story really stood out to me from all of the deluge of news about the election and the constant media cycle of the election. This Pokemon Go story really stood out to me. So I brought in our resident, on-staff, Pokemon Go expert. It's Emily McCarty. Hi, Emily. Hi. Emily, you're our editorial intern for this summer, and you come to us from journalism school in Vancouver, BC. Uh, but thanks for coming down and joining us in Portland for the summer and lending your talents to bitch. And one of your main talents is champion Pokemon Go player. Um, what's your favorite Pokemon? Um, I would say Squirtle. It's
2: like an adorable turtle. That
0: sounds cute. So how does Squirtle relate to American democracy? Tell us about this whole, this whole Clinton campaign using Pokemon Go to register voters thing, what's the deal? So in Ohio, there were some young campaigners
2: who set up lures, which are things in the game that attract um, Pokemon. So a lot of people look at lures in the game and they follow those and go to those locations. Um, The campaigners also set up little registration booths near Pokestops and gyms, which are both places where you can collect supplies or go to battle other Pokemon. So what they did was they set up lures and they set up little booths or had people there with um, voter registration packets. And people followed them, went to the lures, went to the Poke Stops, and they asked if they would like to register to vote.
0: So basically, like, they're sitting at Pokemon hotspots and all the people playing the game are coming to them. And once they come to them, the, reg- the canvassers are like, ha ha, also register to vote.
2: Yes. So these people who were playing Pokemon Go had no idea what would be at that lure or at that Pokestop. So they went there and then, boom, Hillary campaigners. So so
0: amid the Squirtles and the Pikachus, there's also a form to register to vote. Correct. I think that what, what strikes me about this story is it's, it shows that in our country, one of the main things that political campaigns have to do is actually just register people to vote. That we think about political campaigns having to convince people to vote for a specific candidate, to be like, vote for Hillary. But actually, at least progressive campaigns spend a lot of their time just registering voters, trying to find unregistered voters and registering people to vote. It it seems significant to me if Pokemon Go is playing a role in keeping our democracy afloat and inclusive, maybe that's a bad sign about our democracy.
2: Yeah, and they on Twitter they only showed maybe three or four people that they actually registered. When I Mm -hmm. reached out, um, I didn't get back any official numbers, but to me it was more of I got a lot of attention on media and social media. So to me, it's maybe more of oh okay, remember to
0: vote rather than actually having direct results this ties into an article i was reading in the new york times that basically blew my mind and it was an article it's just an infographic and it breaks down what percentage of americans actually voted for hillary clinton or donald trump in the primary season or during all the caucuses okay so emily pop quiz what percentage of americans do you think voted for either donald trump or hillary clinton during the primary season
2: I assumed that it was, like,
0: 20-plus percent for each. That's what I thought, too. I thought that at least, like, 25% of Americans wanted either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. But The New York Times broke down the numbers on who actually voted in the primaries, and it was 9%. So about 4.5% of Americans wanted Hillary, 4.5% wanted Trump. And now we're in the situation where Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are front runners. They're going for the election of the whole country. So reading that only 9% of Americans voted for Clinton or Trump... I just like that, that number really sticks with me. Like, why are so many people not voting or unable to vote? Why is like the future of our democracy being, you know, really guided by 9% of people? So you've been doing some research this summer, Emily, on who's registered to vote and who's not registered to vote and on voter registration across the country. What kind of stuff have you have you seen that really stands out to you?
2: Well, first of all, one quarter of eligible American citizens aren't even registered to vote. So that's 51 million people right there. And then you have to look at people who are non-citizens who can't vote and felons or ex-felons who also can't vote. Looking at felons and ex-felons is really important because even when they're off probation or not even on parole anymore and they've served their time, um, in a lot of states they're still not eligible to vote. So one in 13 black Americans cannot vote because of these laws restricting felons or ex-felons from voting.
0: So in a lot of conversations about elections and about our democracy, um, people who don't vote are really shamed for not doing that. And the whole conversation is framed around you should vote. You need to vote. It's your responsibility to vote. And if you don't vote, it's because you're lazy or you're stupid or you're uninformed or you're apathetic thinking about these numbers has really made me reflect on how I say that sometimes and how this whole issue around not voting is framed. And that it's not just that, it's not just like that a quarter of Americans don't want to vote or are not informed enough to vote. There are barriers in place that keep people from voting. And it's worth examining those barriers and thinking, okay, really, let's dig into this. Like, Why is it that so many Americans aren't voting and aren't guiding Our democracy. Why is that? What sort of barriers exist there?
2: Well, I looked at the 2008 census um, for numbers of why people don't register and why they don't vote. And the number one reason why people don't register is they're not interested. That was 45 percent. But you can't just say, oh, these people are apathetic. It might be because um, they don't feel included in the democratic process or they don't feel represented. So they don't feel like it's going to make a difference to them directly. Um, The second reason was they didn't meet registration deadlines, which is huge. So they had busy lives. They couldn't do it. They wanted to vote, but they didn't meet those deadlines also looking at the first two reasons why people don't actually vote. The first reason was conflicting schedules or they were too busy. So that directly goes hand in hand with not meeting deadlines and not be able to register in time. The second reason was illness or disability, which is huge when you think about that. These are people that wanted to vote, were registered to vote, but they just couldn't make it.
0: A lot of that stems back to the way that voting works in our country, especially having like elections on one day where in most states you have to get down to the polls on that day and go to a very specific place to cast your ballot. So I think we should approach this lack of voting as a design problem that in a lot of ways our democracy is not designed to be inclusive. And we talk about democracy being representative, but who it represents isn't equal. And On this episode, we're going to really dig into that question. We're talking about the design of democracy and looking for design solutions to the central problem of what keeps people from voting. So if you don't live in the United States, if you're a Canadian, like your fellow classmates up in Vancouver, BC, you might not know that in the United States, voter registration works differently in every state. Some states have designed their systems to make it easier to register, and some states have designed their systems to make it harder to register keeping more people from being able to actually vote. So, Emily, you've done some research on voter registration systems in different states, and I just want to talk to you about what good design ideas have you seen for states that are actually designing their processes to make it easier to vote? So, in Oregon, Oregon is really awesome because
2: they were the first state to pass auto-registration. They did that in January of this year. What's auto-registration? Like, you're automatically registered? Right. So anyone who had a DMV interaction between 2014 and 2015 was sent a mailer um, informing them that they are registered to vote automatically. And then and then what happens? They get this thing in the mail that says, hey, you're registered to vote. They have the option to return it to opt out, to return it and declare a party. Or if they do nothing, they're automatically registered. They don't have to do anything and they can show up to the polls and vote. And did this work? Did it actually lead to an uptick in registration? Yeah. So before this, they had around 2,000 registered voters a month. And after this, they had more than 28,000 per month. Wow, that's
0: huge. And so that's definitely something that has made it so that more people are automatically registered to vote rather than, say, having to track down a canvasser at a stop to register you to vote. You're opted in whenever you do anything involving the DMV. Um, but of course, there's some people who aren't going to like that because They don't want to be registered to vote or they think it's an invasion of privacy. Um, Are other states adopting the same model or are other states saying, we actually don't want more people to register to vote or we think this is bad for some reason?
2: So, 29 states plus D.C. um, brought forward either ballots or legislation to make it easier for people to register, i.e. they're automatically registered. Um, So far, besides Oregon, there have been five states that have passed registration. Um, automatic registration laws. Um, California, Vermont, West Virginia, and then just recently, Connecticut and Illinois um, passed the legislation and they're on their way to get that approved before the elections. So this is potentially a
0: huge change across the country for registering people to vote. But often when we look at, you know, the way that our democracy is designed to either make it easier to vote or harder to vote, a lot of what we hear about is ways that Republicans in recent years have been pushing bills to make it harder to vote. So what kind of design changes have we seen across the country, Emily, to make it harder to vote? How is, how is the system changing to exclude people? For the
2: first time ever for a presidential election, 13 states have passed voter restriction laws, which makes it harder for people to vote. That includes things like being able to vote early, um, be able to register the day of, or re- really restrictive ID specifications. So ha- coming to the polls and having to have a certain specific ID in order to vote. What are the politics behind that? Like, why are people pushing to make it harder to register to vote? So the main argument that I found was voter fraud. Um, When I looked into the actual data behind voter fraud, um, they looked at 14 years, 2000 to 2014, and they found 31 cases of potential voter fraud out of 1 billion votes cast.
0: (laughs) So that's (laughs) 31 cases of potential fraud out of a billion votes so what's actually going on here? Just spell it out for us. So basically,
2: they're they're disenfranchising minority voters is the huge thing that's happening. Um, in North Carolina, Texas and Wisconsin, um, they've all struck down restrictive laws. So these are good things happening in those three states. And uh, the court stated in... North Carolina, there was a 2013 law, and they found that it specifically targeted Black American voters. And what it did was cut down extended voting periods and put more restrictions on having really specific IDs. And what they found was um, Black Americans are more likely to use those extended voting periods and to not have the correct IDs. So the court said, this is complete direct discrimination of black Americans.
0: And I think this is something that a lot of people don't think about. It's not just about turning out to vote on election day. It's about the systems we have in place that either make it easier for people to vote or harder for people to vote and that those systems are often invisible and they're often not talked about when we're saying, hey, you should go vote or why didn't people vote? We don't look at those barriers to access there. So thanks for doing that research, Emily. Thanks for laying that all out for us. You're welcome. So these are the issues we're exploring on today's episode, Designing for Democracy. We're looking at barriers to voting, as well as creative design solutions that make it easier to vote. Today's episode was really guided by our listeners. We ran a survey of podcast listeners over the summer and asked what you wanted to hear more of on the show. So, so many people said they wanted to hear more perspectives from people with disabilities. And a lot of people said they wanted to hear more feminist men on the show. All right we can do that. On today's show, we dig into a story about voting for people with disabilities and hear an excerpt from a brand new comedy album by the number one feminist dude comedian in my heart, Hari Kondabolu. Thanks for telling us what you wanted to hear. Your listener ideas will continue to guide our show all fall. So stay tuned. You're listening to Popaganda, the Feminism and Pop Culture podcast. Today on the show, we're talking about designing for democracy. We're looking at barriers that are designed into our democracy that either make it harder to vote or easier to vote or affect who actually participates. Our next segment is about voting for people with disabilities, and it comes to us from independent radio producer Alan Montecilio. Hi, Alan.
3: Hi there. How's it going?
0: It's going great. Thanks for putting together this segment for our show.
3: Yeah, it's great. I had a lot of... I learned a lot uh, working on it.
0: I first met you because you're a producer for another awesome podcast, uh, which everyone should listen to, called Racist Sandwich. That's about race, class, food, and gender. Um, And we started talking about something you could put together for this episode about democracy. And you suggested looking into sort of barriers to voting for people with disabilities. Why was that a story you wanted to take on?
3: Well, one of the things that always comes up whenever there's a presidential election are how, I guess, politicians and strategists can court Lucrative voting blocks, right? So there's always, you know, how do Black people vote? How do Latino people vote? How do Asian people vote? Never mind the fact that there's huge diversities within those voting blocks. Um, But there, you know, there are nearly fifty million Americans with disabilities, and they're really not talked about, either in terms of political strategy, or in terms of what their issues are, or in terms of designing systems that can make it easier for people with disabilities to vote, and. You know, when we're talking about designing systems for the public, uh, if your view of the public is really incomplete and is leaving out a lot of people, you're not going to des- design systems that actually work for everybody. And what happens, I think one of the things that stood out to me is that if systems don't work for you, you just don't show up and vote.
0: So a lot of these issues um, around voting for people with disabilities, first of all, aren't on politicians' radars, even though it's a huge, potentially a huge group of people that could be voting in these elections that are excluded so you're just getting your start in radio, but does this story remind you of something you've reported before, or how does this tie into the other work you've done?
3: So I worked in the story on healthcare for Pacific Islanders who are actually excluded from Medicaid coverage because of uh, part of welfare reform in the mid-1990s. And it seems kind of obscure, and hey, if it doesn't affect you, maybe it is obscure, but if it affects you, then it's definitely not. It's not an issue on the periphery. It's actually front and center. And I think what links those two stories is that Again, as I was saying earlier, they both stem from a really incomplete view of who actually makes up the public.
0: So how does the story about health care for Pacific Islanders tie into issues around voting for people with disabilities? What's the connection there?
3: What both of those things have in common is that now it's up to individual states and individual counties to figure it out. You know, for In the case of Pacific Islanders, since they're ineligible for Medicaid, different states have supplied health care. Some haven't. In the case of voting with disabilities... Uh, Some states have different, you know, different states have different voting systems. You have vote by mail. You have curbside voting. Some places are accessible. Some aren't. And so it's really kind of scattered all over the place. And, And your experience with these systems is really going to depend on where you live. So if you're not even recognized as a part of the American public, policy decisions aren't going to be designed for you. You're going to be left out.
0: Thank you so much for your work, interviewing people on this issue and putting together the story we're about to hear. Um, Let's just get into it.
3: Robin Tovey lives in Portland, Oregon, and she's voted in every election since the 90s. But one of her first memories about an election is from junior high, when she was growing up in a small town in rural Oregon, and Jesse Jackson came to speak at the high school.
4: And The junior high kids who were in honor society were bussed over to the high school, which, for the record, I, of course, had to get a ride from my dad, who worked nearby, but the bus that they were using that day was not accessible. So I got a ride. His speech um, that he gave many places, I'm sure, uh, laid out his concept of inclusion related to his grandmother's patchwork quilt. When he spoke, he mentioned lots of different minority populations and and the importance of inclusion. And it made an impact on me that day. So even though it was a number of years before I could vote, uh, that was a pretty cool bit of exposure to have early on and made me think more about what was important.
3: That speech shaped her political views in a big way. She hasn't missed a presidential election since she was old enough to vote. And even though Robin was born without arms or legs, she always sends in her ballot. It's pretty straightforward. She gets her ballot in the mail, puts the pencil in her mouth, and fills in the form. Then she signs, seals, and stamps it herself. In the U.S., there are an estimated 50 million people with physical or developmental disabilities. Federal laws say that all polling places must follow a basic accessibility checklist. It includes things like wheelchair ramps, parking spaces, and entrances that are wide enough. But not all places are actually accessible. To learn more, I spoke with Greg Baratan. He's a disability rights advocate in New York City. He also helped start a hashtag this year called #cripthevote, which facilitates conversations that focus on disability rights and democracy. Greg has a learning disability, but like Robin, he's had no problems voting. But not everyone he knows has had such a smooth experience.
5: The experience in urban areas I've seen has been pretty appalling. I mean, there are places that are just inaccessible, um where people are told that, you you know, your only option is to do an absentee ballot. You know, I, I, I still have people coming up, you know, on, on Twitter saying, you know, I, I really want to go out and vote and be seen voting, and, you know, they're not giving me that option. I have a twin sister with a developmental disability as well, um, and she's been given grief about getting assistance when she votes. A supervisor had to be called uh, to get approval, and, you know, the volunteer didn't want to let her go in with, you know, an assistant even though it's her right to do so.
3: Greg points out that a lot of places don't even get the basics right. And federal laws still leave enough room for states to make voting harder. You might have heard of the voter ID laws that have been passed in many different states. People with disabilities get those IDs at much lower rates, partially because many disabled people don't drive. Four states deny the ballot to people who live under guardianship, and 30 states have laws that can ban people from voting who are quote mentally incapacitated.
5: You know, you heard lots of stories about this. I mean, people having to go to extraordinary lengths to get an ID, you know, people who don't have access to transportation, people who don't have a lot of time to to spare to get out to to get to these, you know, whether it's a DMV or or a state, uh, you know, ID center. Um, that's only open certain days of the week. Um, So, I mean, it just puts another barrier in people's way that makes it more likely that they won't vote.
3: So there are all of these restrictions and bad ideas scattered all over the country. But Greg says that the good ideas are scattered everywhere, too. And when it comes to making the actual polling places more accessible, it's a matter of finding the many different ideas that work and spreading them everywhere.
5: Well, I mean, I think there are good practices out there. I think we need to borrow from everyone. I mean, there are, you know, there's there's places that have curbside voting. There are places that make it easy to go in with an assistant. Um, there are places that have accessible voting machines. I don't think there's a lot of reinvention that needs to take place as much as actually spreading good practices.
3: This was a running theme as I talked to more people. There should be many options because there are many different kinds of needs. For instance, there's curbside voting where people bring the voting machine out to your car. There's automatic voter registration. States like Oregon, Missouri, and New Hampshire have worked on special tablets that can be brought to a person's home. One activist I talked to suggested secure online voting. Another took it a step further and said that there should be many options that all voters can choose from, whether or not they have a disability at all. That way, nobody has to have a quote-unquote excuse to pick any one option. And then there's also voting by mail. That's how Robin Tovey casts her vote in Oregon. And Oregonians are proud of it. Last month, Senators Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley proposed a bill to expand vote by mail to the rest of the country. Greg says vote by mail is a great system, but it's not a silver bullet, because it's also important for people to feel seen out there as a citizen casting a ballot.
5: It's actually important that the Community is seen as members of the voting public. Um, I'm not advocating taking away mail-in ballots because I think it's it's enabled many people to vote who wouldn't get out. Um, but you know you need to give them that choice. It, it shouldn't be the it shouldn't be the system's choice. It needs to be the person's choice.
3: There's no one perfect design solution that disability activists more or less agree on. It's more like a series of good ideas to address the many different needs that people have. But there's one thing everyone agreed on. There have to be more options and they all need to actually work equally well. And in this election, disability rights have occasionally taken center stage. One of the most powerful speeches at the Democratic National Convention this August was given by disability advocate Anastasia Somoza
0: touch with people like me she has invested in me she believes in me and in a country where 56 million Americans with disabilities so often feel invisible Hillary Clinton sees me
3: I asked Robin Tovey whether she had watched the speech and she definitely had
4: I actually got home from work that night and turned it on PBS, my preferred channel, and I felt like, oh, wow, I left out. It was perfect timing. I saw her roll onto the stage, and I was drawn into that. I stopped to to watch that, and she did a nice job. She spoke well to her experience.
3: Robin was wary of what she called a heartstrings approach. She didn't want to see people with disabilities paraded out in order for people to just feel things instead of changing real laws. And as you can hear, she sounds cautiously optimistic.
4: Uh, Obviously, people responded in a warm manner. That was nice to see. I wanted to see how the follow-up went, right, to to know if later in the evening there was a mention of disability issues in any of the speech-making, and I was pleased.
3: I also talked to Andrew Polring, he's one of the other co-founders of Crip the Vote. I asked him to explain the difference between lip service and meaningful change, but he pointed out that those two things aren't totally separate. Because one reason the crypt the Vote hashtag exists at all is because disability issues were almost never mentioned during the presidential debates and the primaries.
6: You know, there comes a point in the speech when you mention all the different types of Americans who are struggling to achieve the American dream. And you list, right? You use the rule of three and you list three or four different groups. And what we noticed was they were not anymore including people with disabilities. When in previous years, they were at least doing that. And that's lip service right there. But we, we were not even, not even getting lip service. So lip service by itself isn't a bad thing. It's a first step. And, and when we identify it, we want to say, thank you for remembering that we exist now we would like to hear more about what, what you think about this. What will you do? What are the policy issues? So I think we're in that middle step between we're, we're getting out of the realm of observes into something more substantive. I think to the most of the general public, they're still in this stage of noticing the presence and kind of marveling at that.
3: Andrew feels optimistic about the increasing visibility of disabled people. And he says he's looking for a specific thing after the election. Remember how Greg Baratan from earlier on said that it was important to be seen as members of the voting public? For Andrew, that also means being actually included in all that election data that journalists love to analyze so much.
6: It'll be a big step when the day after an election, when all the journalists are poring over the results and doing stories about, well, what did it all mean, right? And they are going and talking about how did Black people vote? And how did women vote? And how did people of this income bracket vote? That they are also saying, and how did disabled people vote? They, they never really do that.
3: Millions of Americans with disabilities are eligible to vote. And lots of them have no problem voting. And others have lots of obstacles in their way. But there are specific patterns that link all people with disabilities.
6: My only real impairment is that I can't walk a long distance and I'm very, very short. I'm essentially a little person. The biggest barrier for people with disabilities, I think, overall, is that voting happens on a particular day between a particular set of hours and at particular places. Okay, that's three different particulars. (laughs) And no matter what kind of disabilities you have, what we all have in common I think is that it's just harder for us to do any particular thing at a particular time in a particular place. We can do these things, but restricting it to a certain way is what makes it hard for us. If my car wasn't working or if I didn't have a car, then I would literally be faced with the possibility that I might just bag the whole idea of voting, even though it's only a couple of blocks away. And you don't have to pile on too many things going wrong for it just not to happen.
3: Robin echoed this idea too. And she also related it to barriers that everybody faces. She said it's one thing to have the actual right to vote, we need to remove every barrier at every size so that people can actually fit this really important right into their schedules.
4: We talk about voting rights in the U.S., but I also think it somewhat can be a privilege because, say, you're a single mom with several kids and it's just really difficult to, you know, get there that evening. Or, say, you have some mobility limitation and you're going to have to take two different buses, or get a ride, or call a cab that may or may not be accessible. Uh, Don't even get me started on Uber. Uh, And that's really going to prevent you from perhaps even following through on the best intentions you might have for voting.
3: For Greg, Robin, Andrew, and others who are working on these issues and care about them, being seen is a huge part of all of this. You can't change laws without applying pressure. And you can't apply pressure if people don't know you're there. The population of Americans with disabilities is so huge and diverse. And it's time for more politicians to start paying attention.
0: That was reporter Alan Montecilio. He also produces the great podcast Racist Sandwich. Also, speaking of accessibility, if you're new to the show, maybe you don't know that we pay a professional transcriber to transcribe each propaganda episode to make it accessible for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. Those transcripts are posted on our site. Just go to bitchmedia.org and click on the podcast tab to see each episode and read the transcript. Tell all your friends. Popaganda is produced by nonprofit independent Bitch Media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. Love our work and want to pitch in? Become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all of our podcast shows and music reviews, straight to your inbox. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. Oh, and hey, on our next episode, we want to hear from you. Our next episode of Propaganda, which comes out in two weeks, is all about body positive exercise. Isn't it screwed up the way that exercise, literally moving our bodies, is tied up with the diet industry and fat shaming and ableism? We should be able to celebrate our bodies and feel strong and get that endorphin rush without being bogged down by ideas about how we're not good enough in some way. So tell us, what is some physical activity you do that makes you feel good? How do you work to separate that from all the bullshit of dieting and body shaming. Do you bike, hike, jazzercise? Literally whatever it is, however big or small, record a voice memo on your phone telling us about what you like to do and email it to me, sarah, with an H, at bword.org. We especially love to hear from people with disabilities and fat positive folks, since you're often overlooked in conversations about exercise. So record a voice memo on your phone and send it in at sarah, with an H, at bword.org. Okay, so imagine you've gotten it together to register to vote. You've jumped through all the hurdles to get to your place on Election Day. You're there, you've got this, and then an election worker hands you your ballot, and you can't read it. It's not in your language. That's the situation that a lot of Americans find themselves in, when their native language is something other than English. One group is looking to tackle this design problem that's particularly present in Asian American communities, They're called 18 Million Rising.
7: Uh, Hi, I'm Caden Mock. I'm the chief technology officer at 18millionrising.org.
0: Caden and the other people at 18 Million Rising are trying to address a big problem.
7: Basically, in almost every poll and every jurisdiction, Asian Americans have a lower voter turnout rate than any other racial group. And this is consistent across both presidential and midterm elections, and that includes white people, Latinos, and also Black communities, that Asian-Americans actually have a lower voter turnout rate than any of those cr- groups consistently across the board.
0: There are some complicated reasons behind why Asian-Americans are less likely to vote than other groups. Some of them have to do with history. Some of them have to do with how our democracy is designed.
7: Some of them are sort of sociohistorical, and some of them are structural. Um, on the socio-historical side, 74 percent of Asian-Americans are immigrants. Which means the majority of Asian Americans are naturalized citizens, and it is also the case that since the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1965, that like a lot of the folks who have come to the United States from Asian countries have come fleeing a lot of political violence. Um, and certainly, this is sort of borne out in my own personal life that there's a lot of reticence to participate in the American political system because of sort of people's like ingrained family knowledge around. Uh, the like potential risks of participating in politics. And I think that's that weighs heavily on a lot of folks, even if, if it's not something that's really brought to light. And then there's also this idea that like, since we're recent immigrants, our communities are so different than mainstream American communities, that we really need to keep our heads down to fit in.
0: One of the biggest barriers is language. Asian Americans speak a whole bunch of different languages. According to the census, the largest Asian Pacific Island and South Asian language groups in the United States are Chinese, Korean, Tagalog, Vietnamese, and Hindi. But a full 1.2 million Asian Americans didn't even see their native language listed on the census. They had to just mark other Asian or Pacific Island language. Only half of voting age Asian immigrants say they speak English well. But getting ballots translated from English into their native language has proven difficult at best. The Landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965 guarantees the right to have all election materials translated. But, little giant loophole here. Local governments only have to translate ballots if the people who speak that language make up 5% of the jurisdiction or account for at least 10,000 people. So if you and 900 other people who speak your language live in a city of 20,000 people, the government doesn't have to translate your ballots and probably won't.
7: In a lot of places, people are kind of SOL. There are a lot of nonprofits that do uh, translation work and different kinds of support work to encourage Asian Americans to get out the vote. But in general, up until this point, like a lot of the, the support depends on, you know, like Los Angeles and the Bay, for instance, have like great nonprofits that are doing a lot of really hard work on some of that stuff, but you know, if, if you live in another city, if you live in Reading, say, you're gonna have a much harder time finding that support.
0: This particularly affects Asian Americans because there are so many different languages within their communities.
7: With a lot of Latino immigrants, many folks speak Spanish, some people speak Portuguese, and there are like a handful of indigenous languages that are common in a lot of uh, Latino immigrant communities. But in Asian communities, like even, People who the U.S. census categorizes as Chinese or Filipino don't all speak speak the same language. Like, there's no one Filipino language.
0: This is something Caden sees firsthand. Where he lives in Oakland, you can hear the diversity of languages just by riding the bus.
7: My neighborhood in East Oakland speaks, well, it speaks Spanish. It speaks Cantonese, Vietnamese, Lao. Um, Sometimes you hear Tagalog, uh, and it's definitely the kind of place where... You know, I sit down on the bus, and because I'm a little racially ambiguous, sometimes somebody will start talking to me in Cantonese. Um, Sometimes somebody will sit down next to me and start talking to me in Spanish. And it's just really, uh, like, there are all these language communities sort of, like, butted up against each other.
0: Even in places that are required to translate ballots that don't fall into that language loophole, there's not a lot of enforcement or follow-up about this
7: law. The Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund has found that only about 45 percent of counties that are required to provide translations do. And that's to say nothing of the fact that even if there may be a ballot in, say, Korean for you, um, if there are no poll workers who speak Korean, going to the polls can be really intimidating. Virtually every election we hear about like Asian Americans, whether they're East Asian or South Asian, being challenged about their names, about their citizenships, um, being asked for IDs in non-voter ID states being asked to spell their names out loud and prove that they speak English, which a literacy test has been illegal for voting since the 60s. But this is like, these are like common things that happen to especially elders in our community who are less likely to speak English and are a little more vulnerable.
0: As someone who's a native English speaker and has never had a hard time voting because of my language, I had a hard time wrapping my brain around this reality. The idea that you would need a ballot in a certain language in order to vote and the local government would not have to translate it for you seems shockingly undemocratic. So I just kept asking Caden, that's legal? If you need a ballot in, say, Lao, and your local jurisdiction says no, that's not illegal?
7: Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like one of those things that uh, should be more fundamental to the way that we run we run this country than it is. And I think that actually there's a lot of folks who are thinking about voter turnout increasingly as a design problem that like a lot of the principles that people use in information design in a variety of different industries can be applied to, like, for instance, how you even design a ballot. I think the most famous example of a poorly designed chat ballot is like the hanging chat issue in Florida in two thousand, where like, it was really hard for people to figure out how to like successfully vote for their chosen candidate, but in sort of like less mechanical situations, also just the way that you lay out a ballot, the way you present information to people can be really confusing. The language that people use to talk about Issues on ballots is also, even if for English speakers, is like a huge issue. Often here in California, we have a lot of ballot initiatives where voters get to vote directly on legislation. And like often, the language of that legislation is not written in a super accessible way. Uh, when folks don't read English at a super high level, even if they're na- native English speakers, um, that can be a major barrier as well.
0: So this is a system
7: that's designed
0: in a way that
7: makes it pretty hard for millions of
0: Americans to vote. One of the big issues here is that elections are expensive. Translation is expensive. Local governments strapped for cash aren't going to do it unless they have to.
7: A lot of us don't realize it's just how expensive it is to administer elections. You know, it's absolutely not free. And like when you're running elections in a county in like multiple different cities and towns that may have Municipal election one year, and then the next year you're running presidential, and then the year after that you're running municipals again, um, and then the year after that you're running midterms. It's like there, and then there are primaries and runoffs and special elections. Like you really have your hands full.
0: Caden and 18 Million Rising started thinking about creative ways to solve this problem. They realized that across the United States there are already lots and lots of people who are working as translators in Asian-American communities. English-speaking kids of immigrant families. Parents often look to their English-speaking or bilingual kids to help them out translating legal documents, movies, and school permission slips. It would be cool to tap into that skill to boost Asian-American voting. So the people at 18 Million Rising made a digital tool. It's called VoterVox.
7: There are a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of uh, folks using the Internet to match people who can provide a service with people in need of that service. Right. And like they don't like always to make the sort of direct correlation between what we're doing and a lot of like sort of like gig economy apps. Just because I think that those are like super transactional. But this is like very much about like how can you use that kind of model to build community instead of eviscerate it. This fall, 18 million
0: rising is debuting VoterVox. This online tool will roll out in September, just in time for the election. Here's how it works. If you're a voter looking for a translated ballot, they have a little sign up form you can fill out with your name, your language, and where you live. They help you get a mail-in ballot, walking you through whatever necessary paperwork your state has, and match you with a volunteer who speaks your language. You and the volunteer meet up with your mail-in ballot and talk through the language and any complicated jargon that might be confusing.
7: And sometimes it's just the act of sitting down with somebody in your community that makes a difference between, oh, my God, voting is really complicated and I can't understand it. And this is something that's like approachable and uh, can be understood. And so we're really looking forward to seeing how it works this year.
0: VoterVox is just debuting in California and Minnesota during this election. Sort of a democracy redesign beta test before they try to take on the whole country. They also plan to hook up volunteers with educational resources like nonpartisan voting guides and background on local issues.
7: For me, VoterVox is also about more than elections, right? Like, it's about getting more people to vote, but it's also about building community power and doing intergenerational organizing using technology, which is really kind of new. A lot of times, like, volunteering in this way is the first time that young people feel really appreciated. For having this like special skill, it's like they never realize that they that being bilingual is actually this special superpower that can empower their communities.
0: VoterVox is still looking for volunteer translators in California and Minnesota, so I asked Kaden if he'd be signing up to translate for anyone this fall.
7: Uh, this is totally funny, but I only speak English. <laughs> I speak English and computer. Um... <laughs> I grew up in a mostly like monolingual uh, English speaking household um, and uh, sometimes it makes me sad. You know, It's like I can't talk to the like aunties who sit next to me on the bus and want to speak in Cantonese, which is my father's language. While he's not signing up
0: to volunteer, Caden has an idea for someone who would be a great ballot translator, his dad, who lives in Texas.
7: There are all of these like sort of like small enclaves of Asian-Americans in Texas. And while we're not rolling out in Texas this year, I, I'm going to be encouraging him to like reach out to Asian, like Chinese-speaking Asian-American groups in Texas, and, and helping folks in his community, because God knows that uh, immigrant communities in Texas really need all the help they can get. So.
0: <laughs> that was Caden Mock of 18 Million Rising. You can go sign up as a volunteer if you live in California or Minnesota at VoterVox.org. All right, this episode has been pretty serious. We've been talking about grim realities of our democracy, but there's gotta be some funny stuff to say about the horribleness of our political system, right? For that, look no further than comedian Hari Kondabolu. He's a stand-up comedian who focuses on social justice. He's also the co-host of new podcast Politically Reactive, and he has a brand new comedy album. His album is called Mainstream American Comic. The cover art is say <laughs> a sexy, serious spoof of an American apparel ad he has generously let us feature some of his new album on today's show because, dear God, we all need to laugh more. So take it away, Hari. It's
8: another presidential election. Looks like Hillary Clinton's going to be the first female president of this country, right? I, don't know. I think it's very exciting. I think it's great. Finally, the Illuminati picks a female puppet. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for joining me from the forums. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I try to like Hillary Clinton, but she's such an establishment candidate. I have a tough time with her. Like, I love Bernie Sanders. Like, my God, he's incredible. He has a progressive agenda that I've never seen a presidential candidate have, and I want to support him. At the same time, we have to be reasonable about it. I think people are making him godlike, and we need to calm down about it. He hasn't proven anything yet. You know, we keep Barackifying him, and that's not a good idea. Because remember the last time we Barackified somebody? You know? <laughs> Barack, and it didn't end up the way we hoped, you know? We have to hold him accountable as a public official, right? My friends say stuff like, come on, hurry, but he's a socialist, come on, he's a socialist. Is he, though? For a socialist, Bernie Sanders sure has a lot of suits. What kind of socialist has the whole fall collection from the men's warehouse? I'm friends with socialists. They have like one suit maybe, you know, for weddings and like arraignments. Like that's all, that's all you really need. But I like Bernie Sanders, I like what he says. I like how he says it. Something about the way uh, Bernie Sanders says things. It's very uh, comforting and familiar to me. I don't know what it is, you know? He'll say things like, uh, we gotta get the money out of Washington, and uh, we gotta end the prison industrial complex, and uh, we gotta go back in time, Marty! Great Scott! We gotta gotta protect Glass-Steagall, (laughs) Marty! Look, I do one impression, all right? That's Doc Brown from Back to the Future, and I plan to do that in every album I release, all right? Man, the Obama presidency hasn't really worked out the way I hoped it would work out, man. The last three months have been cool, though, because he stopped giving a shit, you know, so it's great. It's like office space now. It's like the Republican Party's the fax machine he's kicking the shit out of. Some of you might be thinking, hurry, Kundabolu. If you're so critical of this president, then why did you accept an invitation to meet Vice President Joe Biden in his house in Washington DC last year? I'll tell you why I accepted that invitation. I am a hypocrite. But I'm self-aware, so that makes everything okay. That's how liberalism works. I got invited to the vice president's house as part of an Asian-American Pacific Islander event. People kept saying stuff like, you just got invited to meet the vice president because you're Indian. This is just because you're Indian. No, it's not because I'm Indian. It's because I'm dope. (laughs) If it's because I'm Indian, you're comparing me to people like my mother and my father and my brother, and I'm better than they are. (laughs) Went to the vice president's house with a bunch of other people. The vice president was there behind a podium which is weird to have a podium in your living room. And he had a speech in front of him that his aides had prepared for him, but it's Joe Biden, so he ignored the speech completely, which is never a good idea when you're Joe Biden. And for some reason, he kept referring to everyone in the room as Asian Pacific people. What the fuck is that? Do you think we have fins or something? Like, what does that mean? You Asian Pacific people have contributed a great deal to our society. People like Poseidon, Little Mermaid, (laughs) Submariner, of course. The Asian Pacific region has a great deal of strategic value to our country. Why are you telling us this? You invite us to your home, you tell us we have value to you and you're gonna use us now? Why would you say that? But of course, we didn't say anything to him, you know, because we just wanted a picture with him. That was the whole point of this trip. We just wanted Facebook and Instagram likes. That was all this was about, right? Social capital. So we all line up to take a picture with him. I'm up next, and the vice president looks at me, and he says, Wow, if I had hair like yours, I'd be president right now. No, you wouldn't. Your hair is the least of your problems, Joe Biden. Also, you'd look ridiculous with my hair. I look ridiculous with my hair. But I didn't say anything to him, you know, because I didn't want to get droned, right? So... So I take a picture with the vice president. I start walking away, but it's me, so I have to milk every moment, right? So I turn back to the vice president, and I'm like, Mr. Vice President, I'm gonna be on Conan next week telling jokes. I'm a stand-up comedian. Like, he gives a shit, right? (laughs) Then all of a sudden, Joe Biden's like, really? Well, I'm a big fan of yours, which is a blatant lie, because he just met me. But then I started thinking about it. Hold on a second. Maybe he is a big fan of mine. And the whole time he's been really nervous to meet me, right? (laughs) But he can't say anything because he's the vice president, right, so he can't be a fanboy, you know? He he can't be like, oh my god, it's Harry Kundubulu, Secret Service, hold me. (laughs) No, he has to maintain some dignity. So he slips it in on the side so I know, and I think to myself, finally, an honest politician, right? (laughs) somebody with taste, right? So Joe Biden's my favorite politician now, right? I've been reading up on Joey B as much as I can. And there was an article a few months ago in The New Yorker talking about how funny Joey is. And, you know Joey's hilarious, man, that guy's a laugh riot, man. And here's my favorite sentence. After so many years, he has an arsenal of opening lines that he can deploy in Baghdad, Beijing, or Wilmington. One of his favorites, if I had hair like yours, I thought you were my friend, though. What kind of maniac repeats the same jokes to different people over and over again and <laughs> pretends they're new every time? Who
1: are me?
8: I have no issues with Joe Biden. He's just our weird uncle, we all get to make fun of, right? He's just, just an old maniac, right? Of course, uh, I hate Donald Trump, right? Lex Luthor himself, right? <laughs> A lot of uh, comics uh, who make fun of Donald Trump make fun of his hair. That's low-hanging fruit, man. I'm not gonna do that. I think I'm more mm-hmm. clever than that. I'm not gonna make fun of his hair, you know? <laughs> His hair looks like it was drawn by a child <laughs> while sneezing. <laughs> Felt good. So. Donald Trump says things like, the blacks, the women, and the gays love me. I never knew the word the, it could it sounds so racist, sex is now The only thing Donald Trump has done to liberate women is divorce them.
0: Again, that's Hari Kondabolu. You can catch him live. He tours all over the place all of the time, it seems like. Or just get his new album, Mainstream American Comics. In putting together today's episode, I kept having the tendency to describe our election design as broken, like the systems are broken, we need to fix them. But I don't really think that's the reality. The way elections are run is very intentional. There are strict rules around who can vote and when and how. Those rules are written by people who thought about them a lot. They sweated over the design. So it's not that the design is broken is that the design is functioning the way it was intended. And that shuts out a lot of people. The barriers to voting in this country are man-made. And I mean literally, like, written by men. Man-made by the mostly white, mostly straight men who hold federal office. It's worth keeping in mind that there are people behind these clumsy and exclusive designs. The Americans who are kept from voting by archaic voter registration laws, very new voter ID laws, inaccessible voting facilities, and English-only ballots are either not on our representatives' radars because they're invisible to those in power, or they are on their radars and elected officials would rather have them not vote. Because those very voters who are underserved might vote them right out of office. Sometimes, like maybe most of the time, Looking at American politics, I get distraught and overwhelmed. Like everything we do is just a small drop in the bucket in the midst of some bullshit tsunami. But it's heartening to know that the systems we have were made by people. They can be remade by people. Those people can be us. Band featured on this week's episode is fever high a brooklyn-based two women duo that makes retro super dancy pop fever high check them out remember that our next episode is all about body positive exercise and that we want your voice memos record a little note about what you do with your body that feels good and how you shake off all those nasty body shaming ideas and email it to sarah at bword.org that's me Popaganda is produced by nonprofit, independent Bitch Media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. Love our work and want to pitch in? Become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all of our podcast shows and music reviews, straight to your inbox. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. Popaganda is transcribed by Cheryl Green of StoryMinders to make our show accessible to people who are deaf and hard of hearing. You can find transcripts of each episode at bitchmedia.org. All right, you know my favorite thing about propaganda is the listeners? The listener comment of the week is an iTunes review from listener Merge Turch, (laughs) who writes, I found this podcast about a month ago and went back in time to the very first episode I could find on iTunes. I'm now working my way back to the present. It's so fun to listen to feminist pop culture from years past at work. That's right. We're not just a podcast. We're a goddamn time machine. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening.